The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. By the power and the truth of our efforts this evening, may all beings everywhere be free of sorrow and suffering and the causes of sorrow and suffering. May all beings be reconciled, young and old, parent and children, siblings, friends, neighborhoods and communities, nations, all beings everywhere. May all beings be content. May they live in safety. May they be free of the threat of war and genocide, discrimination of all kinds. May all beings enjoy abundance and prosperity. <coughs> this is our prayer. This is our intention. The same stream of life that runs through the world runs through my veins. We are so achievement-oriented that we often surge right by the true value of relating to what's right before us because we think that accomplishing things will complete us when it is experiencing life that will. Yes, if we can outlast the urge to judge, evaluate, question, qualify everything we encounter, a miracle starts to surround us in which painting, music, poetry, running water, flowers, wind through trees, open vistas, all touch and draw out their counterpart that lives quietly within us. The 19th century poet Gerard Manley Hopkins called this inner terrain inscape. And just as, uh, and just as no landscape can flourish without sun and water, our inscape must be irrigated and drenched with many forms of life if we are to thrive. So when feeling stuck or disconnected from the miracle of life, as will happen to all, uh, all of us, try to listen, see, feel, and just take in. Try to let the energies of life stir their counterparts within you. In order to be whole, suspend your criticism. For life is not a matter of taste, but of awakening. Not a matter of finding things pleasing or disturbing, but of finding things completing, 
not a matter of liking or disliking, but of opening the geography of one's heart. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. I like to rearrange the room a little bit and ask everybody to tighten up this way. Quickly. Chop, chop. <laughs> Tonight is about intimacy, so let's get it together. This is one of my most favorite readings from Mark Nepo, because for me it speaks to the very core of the issue of how we manage our daily living how we live our daily living. And most of us, if we are honest, seem to find our daily living very much like that of a fireman. We are always just running around putting out fires. And as Mark Nepo suggests, we are obsessed with accomplishing. We are obsessed with getting things done. We are obsessed with producing. Because the very notion of inactivity seems to represent to us some kind of loss, which never really exists. Whether you achieve the greatest things in life, whether you accumulate the greatest possessions and wealth in life or not, as you often hear me say, we are all headed to the same place. We are all going to the cemetery. So tonight is about how we live life. It is about the mechanics of living life from a Zen-inspired way. That is to say, to live a Zen-inspired life is to live life fully. To live life fully is to be open completely to everything in life, as Mark Nepo suggests, to be complete. That from the Zen perspective, to be complete or to have the experience of being complete is not a function of preferences. As the ancient Chinese Zen master once said, the great way, which was the code word for life, he said the great way is not difficult except for those who have preferences. Mm -hmm. So life is not a function of picking and choosing, but rather a function of learning to be open to every moment of life, seeing it, feeling it, tasting it, hearing it, embracing it, experiencing it fully within one's body, within one's mind, and within one's heart. And one of the other amazing things the reading suggests to us that you may have never thought of is that in those moments in which we are truly moved by life, possibly some scene in nature or some special event, the birth of a child, some other special event in our life, those moments when we feel very deeply touched, is actually the unity or the union that takes place, the communion that takes place when we have truly opened our heart to the present moment and both the inner world 
and the outer world are reflecting back to each other. When this happens, we are in union, or as many people like to say, but never really walk the walk, we are truly one with everything. We are one with the moment. In order to be truly one with life, we need to be fully open to embracing and experiencing it fully. And much of the stress, which is what our work tonight is going to be focused on, that we experience in life, has to do in the more profound domain of living. We can talk about it from a very scientific place where stress is being caused by certain chemical reactions in the brain and so forth. But from the spiritual aspect or perspective, if you will, the stress we experience in our life has to do with the disunity, the disunity or disconnectness that we have in life with everything in the universe when we are constantly shutting off parts of that universe by the way we live. So I want everybody to do an exercise with me for the moment, and all I'm interested in is in what you notice. So close your eyes. And I want you right now to try not to be aware. <clears throat> try not to be aware. Okay, open your eyes. What did you notice? Anyone? Impossible. Impossible. We are always aware. Awareness is life. What is going on, however, in those moments when we feel stressed is that we're not attentive to awareness. So in Buddhism, there are what the Buddha described 2,700 years ago, three jewels or three refuges. That is to say, in times of difficulty, Buddhists take refuge in three things. Taking refuge in the Buddha, taking refuge in the Dharma, taking refuge in the Sangha. And these terms, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, are ancient Sanskrit terms. In order to better appreciate what they mean to us in the modern world, we will use terms that clearly point to them and are accurate, but don't sound like them. The first refuge is, I take refuge in awareness. The second is, I take refuge in truth. The third is, I take refuge in love. And the three refuges are not some kind of, again, sentimental, philosophical belief structure in Buddhism, but rather real and tangible tools for living life fully and for managing the stressful moments in our life. I want to start with explaining taking refuge in truth because this is the ground of any kind of real mindfulness living, mindfulness meditation. It is also the ground for any real healing process, emotional, psychological, and physical. It is the ground because in Buddhism, when we use the term truth, 
we are not pointing again to some kind of religious belief or Buddhist philosophy, but the term truth as used in taking refuge has to do with reality. To take refuge in the truth is to take refuge in what's so, what's real in the moment, what's so now. And this is essential because often what we try to do in stressful moments, in disappointing moments, or after tragedy or something of that sort, is we try to explain life away with our particular belief systems. And Buddhism says it's okay to have belief systems, but when it comes to taking care of your life and managing it and finding refuge in the storm, we need to take refuge in the truth. We need to take refuge in reality. Now this word truth also points to teachings. And by teachings we mean those teachings which have been well honed and proven to be so, or proven to work. So when we talk about living mindfully, we need to be willing to be open to life exactly as it is and exactly as it isn't. What does that mean? It means we cannot qualify it, we cannot test it, we cannot judge it, we cannot criticize it. We simply, as we will do in our mindfulness exercise tonight, we are simply looking at and experiencing what is so right now. And when you start to take on training yourself in mindfulness living, that becomes the single most difficult thing to really get a grip on. To really get a grip on in the sense that most people say to me, well, how do I know this is so? And the truth of the matter is, what is real is not that difficult to know. The barriers that we have built up in our lifetime preventing us from knowing it. That is to say, the story that we have created about life is literally preventing us from really tasting, from really touching, from really seeing and really experiencing. So part of mindfulness training is the willingness to let go of our obsession with expectations, which are part of the story. In the story, we find expectations. In the story, we find disappointments. In the story, we find unfulfilled expectations, and so forth. But in life, there is just, in this moment, this is what's so for me right here, right now. In this moment, right here, right now. So to take refuge in the truth means that if I'm going to allow the techniques of mindfulness meditation to really have the power they have in my life, I need to start coming from there in life. And coming from there is waking up in the morning and going through the day just as it is and just as it isn't. To take refuge in awareness, we need to go back to the exercise. We can take refuge in awareness at any time. Because awareness is all the time. What is missing in any moment is our attention 
to that awareness. And when we do the exercises tonight, you will see that taking refuge in awareness is a unique experience unto itself. Because in awareness, in this universal mind, this big mind, as we call it in Zen, there is no story about life. There is just awareness. There is this truly uncommitted, without prejudice, without discrimination, observation of life, which allows for the being, for the person, to move about in any given circumstance and situation quite freely and without difficulty. When we find ourselves stuck, as Mark Nepo suggests, we have cut ourselves off from that awareness. We have cut ourselves off from that free movement that awareness provides for us. To take refuge in awareness is to return to our original nature. That is why the ancient Sanskrit calls it Buddha, and Zen refers to it as Buddha nature. Buddha nature is that original awareness, that awareness that life is without any real definition, any real explanation, anything of that sort attached to it. And it is our stories about life that keeps us from life and that keeps us from the experience of moving about life in those most difficult and stressful times with the freedom of a truly freeborn individual. Every single one of us were freeborn. We were freeborn into the world and possess all of the capacities for happiness and well being, peace of mind, and so forth that you were ever going to find anywhere else already within us. It is the union of the inscape and the landscape out here coming together in those moments that we really do experience that freedom I am talking about. And last but not least, taking refuge in love refers to the, the ground of behavior, if you will, towards ourselves. To take refuge in love means to live in a way that nurtures and supports me in the world so that I may be full and complete. And to be full and complete from the Zen-inspired life perspective is to be able to live my life giving back, to live my life as a benefit to others. And often, as I find in my own personal life experience, every single one of us have our moments where stress seems to get in the way of really doing that. And, uh, you know, being a parent of a three-year-old child, uh, I'm learning, you know, the, the absolute necessity to increase my practice in mindfulness meditation in order to be truly present for her in the way that she needs me to be. So, we've already seen that it is impossible not to be aware. And what is important about seeing that, as you will see it again and again and again in the exercises tonight, is the, re the realization, the knowledge, the self-assurance that awareness 
is always available, therefore we can always find refuge in it. Awareness is, in fact, life is awareness. Awareness is. When we do the exercises that we are going to do tonight, and when you take these exercises home and apply them daily and regularly, awareness becomes this fabulous uh, companion that like, f- is with you wherever you are, and that's the way it is already. And as you train in mindfulness, as I have over many, many years, you access it like that eventually. There's no real effort needed so that when the stress shows up and you are aware of that, you can take refuge in awareness, you can take refuge in truth, you can take refuge in love. That is to say, being fully convinced that this moment requires my full attention, and this is how I truly love myself and others. Love is giving my full attention to the moment, to a person, to myself, and so forth. So we're going to take a look at the actual technique of both mindfulness seated meditation and mindfulness meditation or behavior that one uses in the Zen-inspired life to live throughout the day. And we can use this in one of two ways. We can use this, again, to put out fires when they show up. And that is one way to use it. But if you use it only that for that purpose, the uh, benefits, the, the level of quality uh, doesn't really uh, get to its potential. So we can use it that way, or we can use it, again, as a way of preparing to live our lives each and every day. And that is where the mindfulness seated meditation practice comes in. Now this term mindfulness is and has been for some time now a contemporary term for Zen meditation. In fact, John Kabat-Zinn, who is very popular, probably the most popular person in the country for the mindfulness-based reduction uh, program, basically took his Zen experience studying with Zen masters and translated it into a more scientific, secular uh, language of mindfulness-based stress stress reduction. But it is Zen meditation. And this practice of Zen meditation involves the three refuges. It involves cultivating the ground for awareness in just what's so and as a means for nurturing and supporting oneself. And if you take a look at the seated posture of the meditator in Zen or other schools as well, you can see that ground, awareness in what's so as a means of loving compassion for oneself and others. There is a ground that takes place here. So we're going to look at, first of all, a other piece of this that so often is, um, is not considered as much as I think it should be. Without any real understanding of how mind is operating from moment to moment, 
suffering compounds. Our stories of life that tend to uh, kind of fuel the fire of our stress and suffering about life, our stories in life are a function of not understanding what is really going on in mind at, the given, at any given moment. How does mind process the circumstances and situations that we encounter throughout the course of the day? Dogen Zenji, the ancient Zen master who set up the Soto schools of Zen in Japan, said that Zen is the study of the self. Zen is the study of this part of our consciousness, which is often referred to as ego, which is the part of our consciousness that processes circumstances and situations we encounter throughout the day. Zen is the study of that. He said we first need to have a clear understanding of how ego is processing, if you will, the perceived stressful experience in the moment. How is ego processing this? Or what I like to say is what's really going on? Most of the time, we often believe that what's really going on is what the story is telling us. The story tells us, I am feeling stressed right now because of the way my life is going. I feel stressed right now because of the way you are talking to me. I feel stressed right now because life is not cooperating and devoting itself to making me happy. So ego perceives the cause or source of stress as external as something out here causing it to me. And that is what we call uh, false perception or wrong perception. In the study of the self, in the study of how mind processes, from a Zen perspective, our experience is always our experience. That is to say, Life is doing what it's doing out here. And the experience I'm having in the moment of that is what ego is doing with that. And ego is always retranslating the experience for us. It is always translating it back to us according to its language. And its language is always prejudicial and discriminating. Always. Ego is always giving us a false view of the moment because its view of it is always prejudicial and discriminating. Because ego's, ego's single purpose, single design in this part of our consciousness is the survival of the being and anything the being considers itself to be. Survival of the being and anything the being considers itself to be. So that is why often we are experiencing from moment to moment real threats, which is like getting in your car tonight and pulling out and someone cutting you off and almost hitting you, real threat. And most of the time, though, 
some perceived threat. Because ego perceives circumstances and situations out here according to what it perceives to be threatening. And that perception of threat, that perception of threat is based entirely and exclusively on what I believe I am. What do I mean by that? The way we can explain why people will, in a moment's situation, turn on a beloved child, spouse, friend, parent, etc., in a conversation about a particular topic, this person who we love so much suddenly disagrees with us, and we get very threatened by that and very defensive by that. And we say, you know, the things that we say, we come back with the energy that we come back, has to do with, in that moment, ego perceives the being to be its opinion, to be its belief, to be its expectation. And the party out here is threatening that opinion, therefore is threatening the being. And here we go with this, you know, uh, view of life that is causing all types of stress and so forth. Now, it would be easy for me to say to you, and it is, it's how, it's, this is how easy it is for me to say it to you. You are not your thoughts, you are not your beliefs, you are not your opinions, you are not your feelings, etc., 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 so that's how easy it is for me to say that. You don't get it, though. Okay? And so forth. Any more than I get it in those moments that I forget that. Also, human beings are like that. Zen masters and those who aren't. Human beings are like that. In the moments that we find those stressful experiences, we have forgotten a fundamental reality. We are not coming from truth. We are coming from belief or philosophy, and when, when it comes to driving the car of life on the highway of life, it's the difference between reading the map while you're driving and following the road, you see. If you read the map while you're driving, you're going to run off the road, okay? So it is better to follow the road. And following the road of life from a Zen-inspired perspective has to do with staying in the moment, and dealing with what's really so in the moment. Not with what I think is so, not with what I want to be so, but with what is so. And we call that, when we are in stressful moments, those moments when we are dropping our expectations, dropping uh, you know, our beliefs about what should so, you know, defending our opinion, we call that selflessness. We call that forgetting the self. Selfishness gets you to the meditation mat. Selflessness will keep you there. The same is true in life. Selfishness brings us together with our lovers and friends. Whether you like it or not, you know, someone once said, Friends are everybody who agree with us. Enemies are everybody who don't. Okay? So selfishness is the first, att first attracting mechanism in life. But if you want anything to last in life, 
selflessness is what will be necessary. And selflessness is the dropping of our grip, our obsession with wanting things to be this way or that way. And when you practice mindfulness meditation, you can't allow any of this to enter into that practice. It is simply observe what is so. What are you feeling? What other bodily sensations are going on for you? What mental formations are presenting themselves? And to simply observe that. And through the use of the breath, as I will teach you tonight, breathing into that experience and letting go. Breathing into that experience and letting go. Mindfulness begins with attention to awareness. Our attention is always on the story. Our attention is always on what we want, what we believe, what we think, and so forth. When you are in conversation with someone, you will notice, if you are honest, that during the conversation, most of the time we're not listening. Our attention is not on what they're saying to us. Our attention is on our story. And you find that most of the time what we're doing is preparing a response. And one of the keys to a fulfilling and sustainable loving relationship is skillful communication, if not the key. And the key to skillful communication is listening. Listening. Mindfulness meditation has to do with just that, just listening, just listening, taking refuge in awareness, taking refuge in truth, taking refuge in love. And to further talk about this refuge in love, to take refuge in love has to do with the experience that love provides us. When we are truly attentive to the experience we call love, you will notice in those moments, life feels complete and whole, lacking nothing. We don't need to go looking for anything. We don't need to protect ourselves. There is just this complete communion with life. And so in mindfulness meditation, we are loving the moment. We are embracing it and experiencing it exactly as it is and exactly as it isn't. The same thing we do with those we love, loving them exactly for who they are and for who they're not, and so forth. So put your feet on the ground. Those of you on cushions who might want to stand and shake it off, do that quick. And if you're holding anything, a pocketbook, a jacket, or anything of that sort, you will want to put that down. <coughs> and for the next 20 or 30 minutes, I want you to just simply follow instructions and take what you get. Just simply follow instructions and take whatever it is you get. 
drop all expectations and simply notice what is so. So I want you to keep your eyes closed and open them when I ask you to. Keeping your eyes closed will better support you in truly observing your in-scape experience. And that is where you need to be through this process, observing your in-scape experience. And eventually, we will expand our attention through awareness to include the landscape out here. So just close your eyes for a moment, and I'm going to be quiet and give you an opportunity to just, just, Begin to be aware of your body in those seats in this room. And if you're not already sitting upright, you'll want to because of the hour and the day I'm sure you had. It will be very easy to fall off to sleep. And you can do that if you want, but you're going to miss an awful lot. So sit upright and bring awareness to your body. And just begin to notice how it feels. Just simply be aware of your body's sensations, any stressful or strained areas in the shoulders, the back, neck. Just become aware of the body's experience right here, right now. Take a deep breath and hold it. As you exhale, relax. And bring your awareness back to the body Noticing its sensations, noticing any mental formations, take a deep breath and hold it, exhale and relax. Continue to bring your awareness to your body, especially those areas that remain tense or tight. And again, when you exhale, just allow those areas to release and relax. Take a deep breath, 
hold it, exhale, and relax. Bring awareness now to the soles of your feet. Just notice any sensations there. We're going to start to really inventory the body, bringing your awareness now to your ankles and your toes. Moving upward to your calf muscles. Continue to breathe deeply in and exhale, relax. With each movement to each part of the body, take a deep breath and then hold it for a moment, exhale and relax that part of the body. Bring your awareness now to the kneecap and the joint that connects the calf to the thigh. Breathe in, exhale, and relax. Move your awareness upward to the thigh. Just take a moment to notice any tension or stress. Notice any sensation. Bringing your awareness now up to your hip joints. Place we often hold a lot of stress along with the lower back. Just notice how that feels. And when you breathe in, breathe down into those areas of tension or stress. And as you exhale, imagine releasing, 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 and relax. Bring your awareness to the tip of your spine, the lower part upwards to again the lower back muscles and just notice any sensations there. Bring your awareness to the area around your lower abdomen and upwards towards your navel notice any sensations. Now we're going to bring our awareness to our fingers, the palms of our hands, our thumbs. Just sense any sensation, 
texture of the flesh, possibly warmth or cold. Take a deep breath and breathe into your hands, the palms of your hands. And as you exhale, just allow them to drop into your lap and relax. Take a deep breath and hold it. And exhale. Moving upwards on your arms towards your elbows. Just notice the joint that connects there and any sensations that may be there. Moving further upward the arm to the shoulder joints. Just notice any tension there in the shoulder muscles. Moving back to the shoulder blades. Breathe into that area. And as you exhale, just allow your shoulders to drop and relax. Some of you may have to do that a few times until you are truly Letting go, letting go, letting go. Take a deep breath and hold it. And exhale and move upwards to the neck muscles where we really hold all of that expectation, all of that defensiveness, all of that protectiveness. Breathe into your neck muscles and exhale and relax those muscles along with the shoulders, allowing them to drop even further, more and more and more. Continue to breathe deeply Continue to be aware of your body, breathing into those areas where you are still holding. Exhale and relax. Take a deep breath and as we do, move your awareness up into your jaw area, the joints that connect your jaw with the rest of your facial structure and notice any tension there and as you exhale, just allow the muscles in your face around your jaw to let go and relax and allow your jaws to just begin to drop. Another area where we hold a lot of stress and tension, a lot of expectation. Breathe into that area and allow your facial muscles to simply relax. 
relax. Moving upward now to the area around your eyes, the muscles around your eyebrows, your forehead muscles, and just notice any sensations there. And again, breathe into that area. And as you exhale, relax. Continue to breathe deeply. Now bring your awareness to the crown and just simply settle it there as if you were on a mountaintop and continue to just observe your body. Take inventory of any areas still tense or stressed. Breathing deeply in and with each exhale, relax, relax. Now I want you to Expand your awareness as if you are stepping away from your body and becoming aware of it there in the chair, observing it sitting there, observing itself. Becoming aware of the people to your right, to your left, behind you and in front of you. of the floor beneath your feet, the ceiling above, the walls around you, aware of just being right here, right now. Breathe in Hold it, exhale. Continue to breathe deeply. Allow yourself to let go. Awareness is healing. Awareness is rejuvenating. Awareness is vital. Life fulfilling. Nothing's lost, nothing necessary to add, complete. With every breath you take, with every exhale you make, 
Just allow yourself to take refuge in awareness. Take a deep breath and hold it, and exhale, and begin to bring your awareness back into your body, moving it upward to bring your body upward in the seat or cushion. Take a deep breath and hold it, becoming more and more awake and present, take a deep breath and hold it, exhale and open your eyes. How's your world right now? And the truth is, it's always that way. In Zen, we say that the true nature of mind is tranquility. That is to say, awareness at all times, which is reality. Awareness is reality. Everything is impermanent, but you can never not be aware. Therefore, awareness is the only thing that is not impermanent. It is that existing consciousness prior to heaven and earth with no beginning and no end. That is reality, and that reality is just what you experienced all the time. It seems different because the reality we call our lives and reality are two different things. They are two different things. And that is why in mindfulness training, we cannot ignore the pieces of our lives, if you will, the principles or priorities of our life about living life. Because this is what we miss out, which is always available to us at any given moment, at any given circumstance, at any given situation. This tranquility is available to us. Now what we just did is a detailed, long version of mindfulness meditation. It is one I recommend you begin with where you literally scan your body from toe to crown and allow yourself <coughs> in each awareness point to relax even more. As you train in that, and by that I mean do this every day, it will become much simpler in that eventually you enter into the seat or the cushion and you find yourself taking a deep breath, exhaling, and you're there. And you're there. But in the beginning, we need to train the mind to stay here long enough 
to see it there, to experience it there. This <clears throat> daily practice of mindfulness meditation informs your ability to do the second exercise, which we will look at when you come back from the break. But without this as the root practice, the second exercise isn't effective at all. And the second exercise is what you bring with you to work on Monday, what you bring with you tonight. And using these techniques that become familiar and second nature because you have used them often and regularly. Did you hear what I said? This is important. They become familiar and second nature because you've used them regularly. You've trained in them regularly. So that in the course of the day when you're busy at work and you're involved in a project and there's no real time for you to stop and go sit and meditate, you can access them with the technique we'll go over with when you return like that. But if you don't use them regularly and become familiar with them and allow them to become second nature, that's not possible. That's not possible. So mind needs to be trained. And by mind here I mean ego, consciousness part of mind. You just experienced what we call in Zen big mind. Big mind is always like that. No issues, no story, no discrimination, no prejudice, just right there. That's all it is, just right there. Right there at all times. 37 years of training and practicing in this, uh, you know, all I need to say is right there, and I'm right there. But that came from 37 years of daily practice and training. So you need to really get over the excuses if you want to take care of yourself. It's just like, you know, people's excuses for exercising, people's excuses for not eating right. You need to get over your excuses about not getting to meditation every day if you want to take care of yourself. Nothing shortens life more, nothing kills more than stress. Nothing. Nothing robs you more of the possibilities in any given moment in your relationships, in your careers, in any moment of life than stress. Stress literally bars us from and prevents us from experiencing all the possibilities for joy and happiness available to us. So there's the bell. We're going to take a break. When you come back, we will go to part two of this evening's entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> So in the reading that I shared with you earlier by Mark Nepo, I wanted to just go over a few points because the ancient Zen masters used to say, a day of lying and pilfering, meditation will not cure. And the ancient saying points to, again, our attitude or point of view. If our attitude or point of view of life is that 
And I often hear this, I'm sure as you have, from many people, but you don't understand, I have to, I have to, I have to. So if our attitude is that there's nothing I can do about my life, uh, there's nothing more stressful than that belief, nothing more stressful than that point of view. And so there is a change of attitude necessary if we are going to change our body's health, our mind's health, our psychological and emotional health. And the attitude shift has to be, again, that there is something I can do about all of this. I may not be able to do anything about the world around me, but I certainly, certainly have all the power, more than anyone, to do, to do things about the energy or the world within me. And so <clears throat> Nipo first suggests in his writing, if we can outlast the urge to judge everything we encounter, a miracle starts to surround us in which everything around us Everything touches us and draws out their counterpart that lives quietly within us. If we can eliminate the urge to bring a story to the moment, circumstance, and situation, that is to say that the first immediate reaction of ego to any difficulty is to create a story about it, is to attach a judgment about it. Now, again, this is not about denial. This is not about living in denial. The truth is, is that people do bad things to themselves and bad things to others. People treat each other on occasion with little kindness, with little generosity, and little compassion. These things happen. But what is also so is that when these things happen in our lives, we don't need to be so obsessed or attached to them. We can simply see them from a different place. That is to say, not to deny what just happened, not to ignore what just happened, but we can see them as an opportunity to become even stronger, to become even freer in our experiences. One of the examples of this is when His Holiness the Dalai Lama was asked who his greatest teacher was, he said, the Chinese government. The Chinese government was my greatest teacher. And by that he meant it, nothing more stressful, nothing more uh, painful, nothing more suffering than having to leave your homeland and watch millions of your brethren murdered and tortured over the years. And yet, he has trained himself to respond with compassion, with love, with kindness, and so forth. So, some might say, well, he's a monk, he can do that. That's stupid. <laughs> I can't think of anything else to say to that. <laughs> You know, it's kind of like another interview with him, if I can sidestep for one, because I love telling this story. Uh, he was asked if he ever lusted. And he said, oh, of course. He said, I, I see a beautiful woman, and I want her. And the interviewer says, so what do you, how do you handle that? He said, well, he said, uh, first I think 
too much work. <laughs> and then he said, but then I simply say, I'm a monk. You know, I'm a monk. And uh, that takes care of everything. So, uh, so monks are human beings. Uh, you know, people tend to think that in monasteries we live in this very blissful, very happy and helpful, and everybody wants to just be there for each other. And the, No, just like any home, just like any family, the same challenges exist. So Nepo says to us again, if we can outlast the urge to judge everything, and by that he means if we can stay grounded while the story is trying to drag us into the suffering, drag us into the resentment, drag us into, you know, the jealousy or whatever may be going on, if we can outlast that urge, then something opens up in the vista, something opens up in the scenery for us that we would not see while we're in the story, while we're indulging the resentment and so forth. <coughs> and the technique I'm going to describe in a few moments <clears throat> helps us outlast that urge. It helps us outlast that urge. And what is going on in those moments is very much of what goes on in uh, in um, lengthened meditation practice, actually any kind of meditation practice, whether you sit for five minutes or for 50 hours, eventually the mind wanders off. So when Nepo says if we can outlast the urge, <coughs> it means if we can outlast the urge to wander off into a story and stay here, stay present. Now, what do we mean by here? What do we mean by present? Well, you started this evening with an exercise where I asked you to try not to be aware. And you realize that that's impossible. That's impossible because that's all there is, is awareness. So the first refuge in Buddhism, taking refuge in awareness, as I've been saying all night, is always available, always present. And that is what we mean by staying present here, staying present in awareness. And you, will, and you may have noticed in the process we did before the break that in that state, in that place, in that presence, there is no story going on. There is no judging going on. There is no evaluation going on. There is just the presence of everything around you just there. <clears throat> and in meditation, when you're doing seated meditation for long periods of time, the training in keeping one from, you know, following the urge to wander off into the story has to do with the breath. It has to do with, for example, let's say <clears throat> Monday morning you go to work and the typical circumstances that often stress you out show up again. This time, when you notice the stress coming on and you notice the difficulty, or when you notice the person coming down the hall that you immediately get stressful about, notice that, you know, what you immediately do is you start to tell yourself a story. You start, oh, here he comes. Oh, obnoxious. Oh, you start to do all of this evaluating and judging. The moment 
you find yourself beginning to do that. The moment, and this is where awareness and training in awareness. I often say to people, when I first started this, stress jumped on me, beat the crap out of me and everything before I could do anything about it. You see? Today, I can smell it coming seven miles down the road. You see? And that comes from, again, familiarizing yourself intimately through daily practice of sitting in awareness. That way, when the person comes down the hall and the ego starts to indulge the story, which is where the stress is actually being fueled and fired, Get that? Just like that. And go to your desk. You see? Like that. It's the story that we indulge. It's the urge to wander off into the judgment, the criticism, the qualification, or lack of it, whatever it is. It's the wandering off into the story and the indulgence of the story rather than staying here. See, the story is always over here. It's always over here waiting to get in here, you know, waiting to get your attention and so forth. So if we can just not indulge it, it's kind of like um, W.C. Fields, you know, like, get away from me, kid, you bother me, you know. It's kind of like that all the time. It's always hanging around, nagging you and everything else, and you're just kind of like, get away from me, you know, you bother me. So you bring attention back here. You bring attention back here. There's an ancient Zen story about a young man who makes his way to the top of the Himalaya mountains, travels, takes him months and months, and he's beaten up from the cold and the climb and everything, and he finally finds the great master in the mountain, and he gets to sit before him, and he asks the question of, the great question of life, you know, what is the secret? What is the secret to living life fully? And... The master reaches for a pen and paper, and he writes down a word and gives it to the kid, and it says, attention. And the kid's not happy with that. <laughs> he said, attention? I came all this way to hear attention? The master took up another piece of paper and wrote down, hands him the paper and says, attention, attention. <laughs> and this goes on to a third time. And the master writes down and hands it to the kid. Attention, attention, attention. And the message in the story is that it's all about attention. It's all about where your attention is in the moment. Where are you now? Where are you now? In last month's newsletter, I asked the question, in times of trouble, where can I find you? In times of trouble, where do you go? And most of us go to that story. And then we wonder why we feel the way we do. Because it's a story we've been telling ourselves over and over and over again all of our lives. And we've always gotten the same thing out of the story. More suffering, more stress, 
about what's going on. So in Zen, it's not the elimination of what we call today negative stories and the accentuation of positive stories. It's the elimination of indulgence in all stories. Life is not a story. Life is not a story to be lived. Life is to be lived without the story. In fact, you can only live life fully without a story without a story. The story is always about life. It's never directly involved in life. So in mindfulness living each day, when we find ourselves in stressful moments, stressful experiences, when we find them approaching us at work or at home and what have you, in those moments when we find, you know, the stress starting to take over and we're ready really to, you know, we're really to really punch back and, you know, get involved in the story of we have to defend ourselves no matter what, we stop. We take that deep breath, we exhale, and we relax. I, I love telling the story that when my daughter, when I used to take her to a particular uh, preschool academy, uh, she went for, uh, in the beginning, she's a different one now, but I remember one morning taking her uh, there for the day and it was, you know, all the kids were coming in and the place was chaotic and everybody was running around and we walk in and everything else and everything was just out of control. And suddenly I heard the teacher say, breathe! And these little kids stopped <laughs> and breathed and she says, now sit down. And they sat down. They got it. You see? They just take a breath. And they took their breath and down they went. You see? They were where they needed to be, right where they were. So <coughs> it's the simple practice of stopping, noticing, and being aware of the story that you are about to indulge or the story you are indulging and pulling yourself back from there, with the breath, and when you train in this daily, you will naturally pull yourself into that place you experienced this evening for 20 minutes. That is where the breath will take you, and there you let go, you let go, you let go, and then Keep your attention on whatever it is you're doing. If you're typing at the computer, if you're drinking your coffee, when drinking your coffee, drink your coffee. By that I mean whether it's coffee or tea. <coughs> how many of us, you know, I'm, I'm a coffee lover like a lot of people. So how many of us run out and say, i got to get my coffee. We get our coffee, we drink our coffee, and we get to work. And don't even remember drinking the coffee. You see? We don't even remember getting to work. You see? We've missed the whole journey between here and there, and so forth. And that has a lot to do with the point of the training. We are always somewhere off in some story about what's going on. Mindfulness training is about pulling mind back out of the story, using the breath 
and bringing our attention back here every time. And that needs to be applied every time. Every time you find yourself wandering off into the story, you bring yourself back. Now, it can also be used in those times that we just fail and we find ourselves engulfed by the story and we leave the office or we leave the room and we say, damn it, I just let him get to me or I just let her get to me again. We go back to our desk, we go to lunch or whatever it is, and we can use the technique to again bring us back out of that. This is training. You have spent your lifetime in the story. It will take you longer than an hour to train to stay out of the story. Any questions? Drop your feet. <laughs> Sit down. Close your eyes. And again, take your deep breath and come present. Land, occupy this space, this place, this moment, this now. Just continue to do that until again you find the space clearing up. And once we get it cleared up, and do some work in it. Continue to breathe deeply. It is essential that you control your breath in the way that I am instructing you to. Control the breath, control the mind. So when you take that deep breath, you want to breathe in deeply into the abdomen area Hold it for a brief moment and shift your attention to exhaling and exhale. Attention is everything. So you need to be attentive to the inhale and attentive to the exhale. So I'm going to ask you now to recall a person, a place, a situation you find yourself always stressed out by. Just recollect that. Bring that to mind. What is the story you tell about that? Breathe into that story. Hold your breath. Exhale. And let the story go. Continue to do that until you find yourself able to be aware. Take refuge in awareness.
open your eyes. Anyone want to share about your experience on that? What happened for you? Were you able to recall? (laughs) No. (laughs) Anybody like to tell me what happened for you? Um, My mother's annoying to me. (laughs) If it ain't one thing, it's your mother. (laughs) So I just took her at face value because I know I'm going to see her tomorrow and just let let her be mom. Yeah. And taking her at face value from a Zen-inspired perspective is no value. And no value is all value. I have a dear friend by the name of Father DePaul who has uh, master degrees in, in mathematics. One day he showed me <coughs> the mathematics uh, teachings on life. And... Zero is actually all the numbers. And the number zero exists all the numbers. So when we say no value, we mean all value. So in order to arrive at zero, you can't have one or another. Okay? So you can't have one discrimination of any kind or another. So what we try to do is we, when we say take her at face value... We try to just apply the good values to her. I'll try. Okay? All right? But, no, we don't want to do that either. Uh. To take her at face value is to take, in, in Zen, when you come to the monastery to train, you hear me say, follow instructions and take what you get. Okay? That is also a code for living life because your mother is the Chinese government. Your mother is your teacher. Okay, so follow instructions and take what you get. So when she's doing whatever it is that's stressing you out, you now have a technique. Okay, notice the story, breathe yourself back into awareness, and apply and take refuge in love. Also, take refuge in your love for your mother and the love you want between you and her. Okay. I'll think about you tomorrow, see how that goes. Thank you. Let me know. I have one of them, too. (laughs) She's been a great teacher. (laughs) Thank you. Anyone else? Um, I'm a teacher, and from time to time I have to work (coughs) with other people. And since I've tried to become more aware, I'm trying to have a more conscious response to my students and create a more positive environment. And then when I have to work with someone who isn't as conscious, is more reactive, I become judgmental that they shouldn't be like that and I want them to be like that with the kids. Mm -hmm. But it's not constructive and I wonder if you had any suggestions for that. (coughs) Yes, it's called take care of business business Buddhism. Okay? Mm -hmm. Just take care of business. Stay out of whether or not others are taking care of business. You take care of your business. Okay? So, again, back to the monastery life. There are those monks and students who really devote themselves, and there are those who don't. I don't take a moment to get concerned about that. 
okay? It's like I, I say, you know, I give you the tools. When you leave here, you don't you n- ask any of my students for 20-some years. I never call them and ask them if they're doing the stuff, okay? So just take care of business means, again, when you find yourself getting caught up in those people's lack of whatever, take that breath and come back to taking care of your business, okay? Um, and recognizing that the more you nurture your business, the more you nurture your teaching skills, will take care of their lack, okay? So the story, whatever it is, whatever the story is, is where the stress is. So the answer is, is to stay out of the story. 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 You indulge the story for a moment. It's got you. Okay? It's got you. And the story is better than you. What I mean by that is the story has a lot of training in stressing you out. (laughs) Okay? All right? Because we've been so complacent about the stories in our life. We have taken them for granted to be the truth and fact-based so much that they, are, they manage us the way they do, okay? So it's not about taking on the story, and that's what we're doing when we're thinking about other people's behavior. We're taking on the story like it's real. We're taking it on now, and we want to fix this and so forth. Uh, don't. Don't worry about it. You just be you and be the teacher that I'm sure your students are getting a lot of value out of. Okay? Is that helpful? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, (coughs) so often, even in training, we tend to create another story, that life is really complex, and we've got to learn all of these, you know, really complex responses to it. And the truth of the matter is, is that life and, it's, and, the, and the solutions to life are very simple, very simple. You know, like when people, we, we have watched this dialogue in our country go on for years as to how did we get to this economic place that we're in? How did the nation get like this? How do we get to these wars and stuff? There's the simple answer, greed. That's how, greed. That's it. But we don't want to hear that. You know, that's too simple. Greed. How do we, you're greedy. <laughs> you're greedy. You just can't be satisfied. You're greedy. Okay? Like that. So the simple answer to the, the causes of stress in our life is the stories and our indulgences of them. You know, our indulgences of them. And the story is nothing more than ego part of consciousness way of surviving what it doesn't expect to happen in its life. So, and we start this early on as children. You know, early on as children, you know, I I watched my three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, and I'll never forget the day she said to me uh, one day after we were having a temper tantrum encounter, and, and later on we have this practice at night, her and I sit down and we talk about where she could do things better and where daddy could do things better. And so uh, she's, I told her, you know, where I think she, and I said, so where do you think daddy could do things better? And she said to me, 
me, the Zen master, you ready for this? She said to me, uh, you, well, so I think sometimes you have to remember that I'm only three and a half years old and I don't think like you. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love her. <laughs> and I do. <laughs> and I obviously say, oh, I'm here. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> So, at three and a half years old, we are absolutely confused by all of this. And when it gets difficult for us, uh, ego's nature at that, at that development period is to tell a story about it. It's to tell a story about it. Because science has proven that three and a half year olds are usually operating from a brainwave state, which is for us dreaming. Dreaming, okay? So uh, in the dream world, as you know, when you go to sleep tonight and you dream, uh, it seems very real to you, okay? But you and I both know it's not when we wake up. Uh, for them, it's all real. It's all real. They don't know the distinction between the dream and reality. So early on, we learn to tell the story and to believe it as real. And then we continue to do that throughout our lives until we end up in a place like this and someone suggests to us that the cause of our suffering is our story and our indulgence of it and attachment to it. And then we start to turn that around. So how many years of your life, how many moments of your life, how many opportunities of your life have been lost because... You've opted out for the story is real. You see? So what I'm telling you tonight is, whatever the story, <coughs> forget about it. Okay? Just stay right where you are. Stay right where you are. Stay in the moment. Stay present. Anyone else? If you have a story that's an emotion, like fear, Yeah. and so that's what came up for me that I wanted to at best eliminate but try to minimize <coughs> how does that work? <coughs> it, it involves understanding the story was fearful I mean, yeah. the story that what in reality it was fearful yeah yeah and now the story is still with me right and the story I, I would assume right and you're living the story as if it is still with you, mm -hmm. as if it is still happening. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's several factors here that we need to understand. As I said earlier, without a clear understanding of how the mind is operating, suffering compounds. So first of all, every thought we think, if we can see it like our hand, this being the thought, what is on the other side is a feeling or emotion. So without, so what a thought brings with it is an emotion or a feeling. So stories are nothing more than a collection of thoughts put together into some kind of perceived reality. So again, uh, when we are reliving a past experience of life, a story from the past that generated fear or was really fearful at that moment, when we are reliving that as if it's actually happening now, it's the same thing as wandering off from the present. 
Okay, so for example, let me uh, let me use as an example probably a very popular story, and that is, how am I going to pay the bills? I don't have enough money. Okay, and so forth, and we get fearsome and worrisome about tomorrow. In the practice of mindfulness meditation, when you use this practice in those moments to just be aware of right now. So, for example, and I've been to your beautiful home. So, for example, in those moments, bring your mind back to where you are in your home and just look at the abundance there. Look at the blessings there. Look at the beauty there and so forth and settle in that. Okay, so the same applies, <clears throat> whatever the story is, the same applies. At the moment, is it really going on now? No, therefore I've wandered off into the past, okay? I need to train my mind to keep coming back. So when that happens for you, you've got to regularly and consistently come back to the present, come back to the present, come back to the present. All of our stories are generating some kind of emotion about now, about now. And in fact, what is going on is how the mind operates. The mind, when it perceives something out here, functions very much in the way computers do. And in fact, that's how they created computers. So you talk to a computer geek and they all say the same thing, junk in, junk out. Okay, so that when you go to a computer and you type in a question, it searches its hard drive, its database for the answer. It is looking back into a resource and bringing that forward into the present moment. Mind operates the same way. Something in the present triggers that story for you. Okay. And mind's way of dealing with that fear that you haven't completed, and that's a whole other training we'll talk about. We'll work on that Saturday next month. Uh, mind hasn't completed that experience from the past, so <coughs> mind sees this stimulus, looks for something from the past to understand what's going on here, and literally brings up that story brings up that story and we feel like it's really going on here and now. Mm -hmm. That's how it all happens. If you take, uh, if you take a, uh, uh, an animal at birth and, and keep it away, you know, keep it away from the forest, for example, and you know, grow it in this secure environment and put it back into the forest, when the, when the hunter's foot hits the branch, it don't run. And it's dead, okay? Because it has no memory of that from its past. That's what's going on for us right now. So all that's going on in those moments is mind, because of its lack of awareness in the moment, is reliving that experience as if it's really now. Take refuge in your awareness as to where you are now and what is so now train in that, and that will dis uh, dissipate the power of the story, okay? When we indulge the story at any time, we give it power. We indulge it regularly, we give it regular power over our life. When we refuse to indulge it, no matter what, 
the story eventually disappears. This is what Zen calls fully experiencing something. In order to, f in order to have a past experience disappear, you need to fully experience it. The way to fully experience it is to remain present in awareness while the story is going on. While the story is going on. Because the story is always taking us away from reality. It's always taking us away from what's so. Is that helpful? Yes. Thank you. Anyone else? So I want to, I, I really like Nepo's work here on this, so I want to go over a few more points he brings out. <clears throat> so when feeling stuck or disconnected from life, as will happen to us all, try to listen, see, feel, and just take in. Try to let the energies of life stir their counterparts within you. And what is happening when the story is running in us is that we are cut off from those energies. We are cut off from the energies of life and bringing, uh, bringing our attention back to awareness or, again, uh, pulling ourselves back from the story into this space called awareness, we are reconnecting with those energies again and just sitting in the breath, just sitting with the breath is the energies at work stirring in us again, reconnecting us, rejuvenating us, and so forth. In order to be whole, suspend your criticism. In order to be whole, suspend all stories. In any given moment, in order to be whole, in order to feel complete again, in order to feel capable. Uh, several months ago, I started to teach my daughter a, a mantra that goes like this. I am wonderful. I am beautiful. I am capable. I am loved. And I have her repeated in the morning and at night with me. And she's, you know, done it long enough where she knows it on her own. And being the kid that she is, she wanted to understand what each of that meant. And so we, you know, we talked about what capable meant and all of that stuff. And uh, she, every time I see her in one of those frustrating modes where she doesn't know what to do, I have her repeat that mantra. And when she gets to I am capable, you can see her mind, or at least I can, see her mind just settle back down and the frustration drop away, and the frustration drop away. The story is always convincing us we're not capable. The story is always convincing us that we are not capable of being anything else but the emotion present in the story now, and that's a lie. That's a lie. It's simply moving away from the lie back into the truth that we find our liberation from the stress that is going on in the moment. The stress is the same frustration I see in my daughter's eyes who somehow inherently knows she is capable, but right now she doesn't understand this feeling, this emotion going on in her that has her convinced she's not. You see? So this has been going on for all of us 
for a very long time. What we are doing tonight is possibly for the first time learning how to turn that all around so that we can return to that awareness consistently and regularly where we find we are always capable. There is never... Look, when you take a look at the number of tragic lives in the world that have experienced such tragedy greater than we can ever imagine and still to come out of that loving and compassionate and kind, what's your excuse? You see? Human nature is resilient. It is unlimited. It is, as the Buddha called it, infinite field of potential. That's what we are. We just need to use what is available to us to always remember that, to always remember that. When my daughter gets frustrated, I just remind her that there's no reason for her to be frustrated. When you find yourself in the story that is limiting you, and clearly a fearful story does, and all of that, when you find yourself in the story that is limiting you in any way, just simply say to yourself, there's that lie again. Take your deep breath and come back to the present. I always, I have taught my students for 37 years the same lesson. <clears throat> all self-criticisms, evaluations, all criticisms and evaluations and judgments of oneself and others are all lies. So whenever you find yourself stuck in the story that is critical or judgmental in any way of yourself and others, you stop, you take that breath, and as you exhale, you simply say, just another lie. Just another lie. And move on. And move on. The truth is experienced in awareness. When you sit in awareness regularly, the lies drop away and are more easily, easily detached from because you recognize them for what they are before they even get a second word in. Any questions? In order to be whole, suspend your criticism. For light, and remember we talked a few moments ago about attitude and point of view. Life is not a matter of taste, but of awakening. Not a matter of finding things pleasing or disturbing, but of finding things completing. Not a matter of liking or disliking, but of opening the geography of one's heart. So life is not a matter of what I like and don't like. It's a matter of, you know, <clears throat> I can remember when I had my heart attack, and even when I find myself, you know, sick and, and, and in bed and unable to do things, I have these moments, and I'm sure you have also, where I ponder about how much has been lost or missed, and what if this was the end, you see? And uh, the way you change that is by opening the geography of your heart 
and embracing everything that comes your way as opportunity rather than oppositional. And that's one primary <coughs> attitude that has to be readjusted in order for any of this to work for you. So in relationships, I say to people, a sustainable relationship is dependent upon all parties being willing to experience whatever shows up in that relationship, not as oppositional, but as opportunity, you see? And so whether it's a relationship between two people or your relationship with life, the attitude that needs to be adjusted is seeing these difficult moments as oppositional. If you can start to see that obnoxious person that brings you stress on Monday morning coming down the hallway as an opportunity now for you to train yourself in mindfulness living, watch how that will change your point of view of them. You see? See, a long time ago, I decided I wanted to master life. And so I took on Zen students. You see? If you want to master life, take on Zen students, okay, <laughs> and so forth. So it, it operates like that. <laughs> Any question? I just had heard a, a, a teach, spiritual teacher talking about traffic jams and using them as um, spiritual teachers. Uh-huh. And ever since I've been doing that, I have not been in a good traffic jam. To do. <laughs> Every time I'm like, okay, the traffic's slowing down, it's time to take... And the traffic starts moving. Yeah, but it's like I always say, when you're in a rush, everybody's driving too slow. Right. When you're just out for a ride, everybody's just wonderful. <laughs> it's all about the inscape harmonizing with the outscape. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Anyone else? Well, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> so uh, I just want to uh, share an announcement with you. We are going to have a one-day seminar retreat at Pinewind next month on Saturday the 13th titled Awakening the Sleeping Giant, Lessons Learned from Abandonment, Betrayal, and Loss. So if you are still in recovery, grieving from some loss, from some relationship broke up, some betrayal, some abandonment experiences. Come and join us that day, and we, the day is dedicated to healing and renewing and moving on with life. Also, remember that every Tuesday, uh, either myself or one of my monks are here at Yoga for Living from 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock training in mindfulness meditation. So if you need to go somewhere in order to get this training in regularly and consistently, come here Tuesdays at 6 o'clock and join me for an hour in uh, actual, <clears throat> actual training in the meditation. Anything else? Maybe you it is always a privilege to be with you, but especially tonight after a week being held up in bed and not being able to see the wonder of life. Thank you. Go ahead. <laughs>